0: Our scripture lesson today comes from the gospel, the good news of St. Mark, chapter 5. If you've been with us the last number of weeks, you know that we're moving through the gospel of Mark. I hope you're reading along with me. It's only 16 chapters long, and so um, you're nearly halfway through already. So let's share in God's good word together. They arrived on the other side of the sea in the country of the Gerasenes. As Jesus got out of the boat, a madman from the cemetery came up to him. He lived there among the tombs and graves. No one could restrain him. He couldn't be chained, couldn't be tied down. He had been tied up many times with chains and ropes, but he broke the chains, snapped the ropes. No one was strong enough to tame him. Night and day he roamed through the graves and the hills, screaming out and slashing himself with sharp stones." When he saw Jesus a long way off, he ran and bowed in worship before him, then bellowed in protest, what business do you have, Jesus, son of the high God, messing with me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. What have you to do with me, son of the high God? That's a great question for us, isn't it? What does Jesus have to do with us? What power does Jesus have? To offer us, If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. We are in our third week of the Unexpected Jesus series as we move through um, the Gospel of Mark. Next week, we'll finish that up um, with the resurrection and the hope of the world in Jesus. Um, just as a reminder of where we've been, um, we began our journey down here with Jesus' baptism. Uh, he had come from Nazareth and traveled down to where John the Baptist is, down here uh, around the Essene community. Uh, they would have met probably somewhere along here. Um, Scholars uh, disagree, it's somewhere along the Jordan, uh, but more than likely, since people were coming from Jerusalem, it probably would have been down here. Uh, last week, we moved up to uh, Jesus' hometown around Nazareth and the call of the first disciples around Capernaum. Um, we, we know that um, the people that he called were not the best of the best Jewish scholars. Uh, if they were, they would have already had a rabbi. Uh, but he calls fishermen. And then not only does he call fishermen, uh, he then calls uh, apprentice fisherman if that weren't bad enough and then if if that weren't bad enough he calls Levi a tax collector jesus is doing unexpected things in unexpected ways and then we come to something even more unexpected all these stories if you've noticed are over here on the west side all of this capernaum his hometown nazareth jerusalem's going to be way down here on the on the left all of this happens over there because that is where The Jewish communities lived. It would be very rare for you ever to come over here to this side. This is known as the Decapolis. There are going to be 10 cities over there, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But that was not where the Jewish people lived. And they they thought uh, that these people uh, were dangerous, uh, wild, harsh, um, not like them, uncivilized in every way. Uh, The Lake of Galilee here Or the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Tiberias, or the Lake of Gennesaret. All of these are names for the same body of water. It's 13 miles long, top to bottom, about 8 all the way across. Uh, But for this journey that Jesus is about to take from Capernaum over, it's going to be about 5 miles. And when they arrived, there would have been many caves in the limestone uh, where they used to put um, dead bodies uh, as a burial place. And so... um, We've been there a couple of times, and it is beautiful and lovely. Um, but big storms can come up um, because it's a mountain range, and the, when a storm comes up, it comes up sort of out of nowhere, right over the mountains, and, and there you go. And, and you're in a dangerous spot in a hurry. And so, the setup to, to this story in the Bible is this that Jesus said, Let us go across to the other side. The other side, the place that's not familiar, the place with the people that you don't really know or get along with, and they're, they're other. I'd like for you to think for a moment in your own life about who's other for you. Who's other for you? That's who Jesus is going to go to. That's who he's come to save, his other. Now, the scripture says, On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side, not the people that we've been with, not all this, all this stuff on the west side where, where our friends and family and neighbors are. We've, we've done that, and that's a good place to start. But now it's time to go to the other side. And in Jewish life, and in ways that aren't so true for us anymore, it was separated into two categories. It was very clear. They were, say them with me, clean and unclean. It was black and white. That's just the way it was. It was either clean or it was unclean. When it comes to meat, for example, um, it was fine to eat quail and fish and sheep and chicken and turkeys and cows and buffalo and deer. That was fine, but you could not eat all these folks down here, right? No rabbits, cats and dogs out of the question. No horses or rats, no turtles, right? But then we get to some harder stuff. No shrimp. Are you kidding me? No crabs or, you know, no crustaceans, no, no bottom feeders, and no bacon, Man, right? But for them, it was very, very clear. It was either clean or it was unclean. No in between. It was black and white. It was either clean or unclean. And people were in that same category, by the way. The priest said you were either clean or you were unclean. If you were unclean, you were away from the community until he said you were clean, and then you were back in community. And that's the way it was. Now, the sea was a barrier between the two. Basically, clean was on the west side, and the unclean were on the east side. The unclean were the other, the dangerous place. Now, when I think of the sea, when I think of water, I think of this. Ah, isn't that lovely this time of year? That's what I think of. When the people in Jesus' day thought of the sea, they thought of this. It was scary. It represented chaos. It represented danger. And, and they, as a fishing community around Capernaum for sure, had lost sons and husbands and friends to these storms that had come up the The boats were very tiny and were easily swamped. And so the scripture says, leaving the crowd behind, they took with them in the boat, just as he was, Jesus. And other boats were with him. And this great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But Jesus was in the stern asleep in the cushion. And they woke him up and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Will you read that with me? Do you not care that we are perishing? Haven't you ever felt that way with God before? You're in a hard spot. And you cry out, and nothing changes. And you think, man, is Jesus sleeping? Where's our master? Where's our teacher? And then we see something that blew their minds. But, you know, we know it because it's it's a story that's been around for thousands of years. But for them, they began to understand that Jesus' authority extends even to the wind and the waves. Not just to people but to all the world, that Jesus really is God. He is who he says he was all along. And so Jesus, sleepy in the boat, he wakes up, he rebukes the wind and the sea, and he says, peace, be still. And it was. There's a dead calm. And then he looks at them and he says, why are you afraid? And knowing where the story's about to go, I kind of wonder if Jesus isn't saying, oh, you're going to be afraid. Like, this is nothing. Wait till what comes next. Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? Now, where they are headed, this Decapolis, is a federation of about ten Gentile cities. Jordan, Pella, Dion, Gerasa, Philadelphia, Gadara, Rafana, Canatha, Hippos, and Damascus. Basically what is Syria today, and that area around Jordan. It's on the east side. And from about the 6th century uh, of the Common Era or A.D., uh, Roman soldiers had come in and occupied it for roughly a generation. So the people there, there would be people there, this is all they knew, that they had Rome's boot on the back of their neck. Now, it is really hard for us uh, today to get a sense of what it is like to be a subjected, oppressed people who are run by a foreign country. It's very difficult for us. We live in freedom and have for some time now. That wasn't true for them. And they were the furthest outpost um, of this. So now we're talking about this area all along here. Uh, one of the interesting things is as you study this, um, if you look for the, the town of the garrisons, it's actually going to be way down here. And that's sort of a, a, a clue to one of the things we're going to look at here in just a minute. Um, But the the story goes that Jesus basically goes the five-mile journey from here over to about here. So Jesus and the disciples, they arrive at night. Imagine that. So remember how they left in the evening, right? And it's about a five-mile journey by boat. And so they're going to roll up to the shore at night with caves. And they're met by a howling madman. Can you imagine this story is being told around campfires? It's not written down uh, for quite a while. And, I mean, this is a good story, right? This is the sort of story we tell around Halloween. And then they got in the boat, and there was this big storm. And then at night, the wind was howling, and the waves were crashing. And this madman came at Jesus, and he fell at his feet. He prostrated himself. And so the confrontation is this. Out of a tomb, out of one of these caves... This madman runs at Jesus and he falls at his feet. The scripture says it this way. It says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately when Jesus steps out of the boat, a man out of the tombs, imagine how scary that is. Somebody's like leaping out of a tomb and he has an unclean spirit. He meets him. He lived among the tombs, which made him super unclean. And no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains. But the chains were wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran to him, to him, not away from him. And so I don't know exactly um, what it would look like, but um, you can see these caves sort of uh, washed out by the waves. And the moment that Jesus steps into this Gentile territory, this other territory, this legion prostrates itself before him. And we're supposed to know that God's kingly power has subdued everything on the other side, including Rome. The greatest power that the world knew at the time. Now, I don't know exactly what it looked like, and I won't keep this up very long, but I think some of you, I don't watch this kind of stuff, but I think it might look like that, right? I mean, zombie apocalypse, right? The elements of impurity, I want you to get this right. So there's clean and unclean, right? This guy has an unclean spirit. That's strike one. Second, he's dwelling in the tombs with the dead. Strike two. And then three, there's going to be pigs, swine. You, You take that together. And put those three on, t- on top of each other, you have dirty, 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 dirt, unclean, 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 unclean. What we're supposed to know means there's no hope for this guy. The demons have stripped this man from every shred of dignity and humanity that he's ever had. He's impure in many ways, multiple ways, driven from human contact. He's not in contact with any other people. And he sees Jesus and he runs and he falls at his feet. Now, often um, you'll remember that the Jews would have known uh, the Torah and the writings uh, by memory, uh, many of them. And so this would be reminiscent of Isaiah 65 when the prophet says, I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask. This is God speaking through the prophet. To be found by those who did not seek me. And I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that did not call on my name. I held out my hands all day long to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in the gardens and offering incense on bricks, who sit inside tombs, who spend the night in secret places and who eat swine's flesh with broth of abominable things in their vessels. This guy represented everything that was wrong. Unclean, unclean, unclean. He makes Levi look like a saint. Now, what does he do? He bows before Jesus and he shouts. He's face down at Jesus' feet and he bowed down before him and he shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And I wonder how many of us, when it comes to Jesus, we think he's going to torment us. We're afraid of what he might ask us to do. We're afraid of what happens next if we actually submit to his plan and his way. And I'd never seen this before, and it kind of disturbs me, but it's in there, so I have to share it with you. And that is this, that Jesus commands the unclean spirit to come out, and it didn't. It didn't. If you read verse 8, it just stops, and, and it didn't. This is God Almighty. He had stopped the wind and the waves and saved them, and it, it didn't do anything. This is how bad off that guy was. And we're supposed to see this. The scripture says, for he had, Jesus had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit nothing happened. So Jesus' second move is to ask, what is your name? What is your name? And it was, it was thought then and through, through Hebrew history that if you knew someone's name, you had power over them, you had some control over them, in the same way that Moses even asked God God's name. And so Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, if you're hearing that on a cold, dark, winter, scary night, all the kids around the campfire go, ooh, right? I mean, that's, that is some rough stuff there. There's a power there that is greater than the disciples had seen, greater than the hearers had seen. There had been trauma. There had been heartbreak. There had been real danger and terror around this man. You see, Legion is a unit of the Roman army, of their oppressor, of 6,000 men and 120 cavalry. Now, this is what's unexpected. The 10th Legion used the boar as its symbol. The 10th Legion was the occupying force on the east side where Rome went. It was one of the furthest outposts from Italy. It was largely unsupervised, and all sorts of atrocities would happen there. So legion is this veiled way to talk about the devastation of people and property caused by the Roman occupation. The 10th legion was notoriously cruel. So, to give you an idea, Rome's here. The 10th legion, if they were going to be supervised, is here. Now you can imagine, there wasn't a lot of supervision going on. William Barclay writes, The legions at their wildest and most irresponsible could sometimes be guilty of atrocities that would make your blood run cold. And perhaps this man had witnessed or participated in some such terror, death, rape, destruction, slave trafficking, sex trafficking. And perhaps it had driven him insane. Now, so that I don't lose this completely, I want you to know my, my own experience is that things of an emotional, psychological, spiritual nature are all tied up together. And it's really hard to, to untangle those. It's very hard. And so however you um, think of this, know that all of those things are, are in there together. And this man, this man filled with spirits that he could not control and were controlling him, begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, that's a very interesting request, isn't it? From this naked, wandering tomb dude. Right? That's how I learned it in seminary. So why would someone ask not to be sent out of the country unless you had been sent to that country? As a military overseer of a people you did not care for, didn't understand, didn't like, didn't want to be there. And so they're begging Jesus, look, we need to be here. Because it was also true in Rome, if you didn't do what your upline told you to do, they'd just kill you either for sport or to make an example out of you. So this is a very dangerous thing for these men, these young men. And the demons represent Roman military power, begging Jesus not to send them out of the country. Now it gets even more interesting as you, as you study the words here. The word for herd uh, isn't really used for pigs. Any of you all raise pigs? They don't travel in herds. Pigs go wherever they want to go. right? They have a mind of their own. You've never seen a herd of pigs, have you? Oh, look over there. There's a herd of pigs. No. You don't see that. Cattle, yes. Sheep, yes. Goat, yes. Pigs, no. Right? It most often referred to a band of military recruits, ones that were not well-trained yet. They were just coming in. And so now you get a picture of young men, maybe 20, 21, 22, far away from authority. And it is the wild, wild east. And it is dangerous and terrible things happen there. Now, there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding. And the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And the herd, however we think of that, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steam bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Now, I'll remind you that these are all military terms. Permission, like a supervising officer, yes, you have permission to do that. Herd military recruits and rushed charged as if going into battle and then something really interesting happens they were drowned in the sea now if you're Jewish you're digging that because your quintessential story is about being freed while an occupying soldier is drowned in the sea isn't that true in Exodus right the Exodus event this is their story now every once in a while when we get to confirmation or we're working with our young people um, I start to get some pushback they think people think that maybe jesus is mean for drowning these cute little pigs <laughs> right well you had to lighten it up somehow right pig in rain boots sweet that's not what we're doing here okay what we're supposed to know is in some way beyond what we can understand and maybe in a veiled way to keep them alive they needed to talk about the people on the east side or the experience of what was going on the east side of the lake. Now imagine if you were very religious. And you lived in Tulsa. And you heard about these people in Arkansas. Right? They had a different language. They would say like, sue Pig, pig, pig. Right? And it would scare you. And, you would, and there were like the thousands of them. You just never knew what was going to happen. They would be shirtless. And not well shaven. I mean, just, Ew. Right? And then, and then every once in a while, someone would get out of hand. And, and they would have the hats, and they had this different language. They were uncivilized. It was dangerous, uncontrollable. They didn't know what would happen. Does this make sense? You had to have some way to talk about it. And so it might have been more like that. We don't really know. But what we're supposed to know is whether it was an uncontrollable herd or an uncontrollable herd. Jesus has authority over it all. You see, enemy soldiers swallowed by the water is the quintessential Jewish story. It gave them hope. In the same way that the Jews could never imagine freedom after 400 years of slavery, they couldn't imagine what it would be to be free of the Roman Empire that that the sun never set on. Pharaoh's chariots and armies, he's hurled into the sea, Exodus says. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. That's their story. And this is what I want you to know: that there is no power so great, no pit so low, or trauma so shameful that Jesus can't reach out and heal you. Now, this is important in the story because certainly, when you come to uh, multiple personality disorder and other mental illness, um, it's it's very difficult. I've only had one experience uh, with this in my ministry. I was uh, 26. It was 1994. I'm coming up on the 25th anniversary of the event. Um, It was the close of service. I was serving at Highland Park United Methodist Church, and I was the minister to visitors there. There were about 750 people in church, and um, at the close of every service, we would invite people to come join the church, and I would give Dr. Farrell, who was joining that day, and... um, Without any notice, this gentleman walked down the center aisle behind me. I didn't see him. He was about 6'6". And what I didn't know is he was wearing shorts and gym socks and some shoes and an unbuttoned shirt. It was unkept. His hair was a mess. Um, And I could smell him, but I couldn't see him. And I remember Dr. Farrell leaning over to me and he said, There's a gentleman behind you. Take him to your office and don't let him out until everybody's gone. I said, Yes, sir. And I turned around and I went, Help me, Jesus. And we did. That young man, um, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, had would been a former football player at the university. And you could tell he was a lineman. He was probably pushing 300 pounds and no fat on him. Um, and as I brought him to my office and locked the door and then locked the inside door, um, we began to talk and we began to pray. And I asked him, you know, why are you here? And he says, I, I, I want to be freed. I, I need Jesus. I need, I need for this to, to come out of me. And so I began to pray for him. And as I prayed for him, um, he would start to writhe and fall on the ground and uh, convulse and foam at the mouth. And I prayed in Jesus' name. That was the only thing I knew to do. And as I would do that, he would actually flip out of that personality and take another personality. It was one of the most challenging pieces of my ministerial career. And all I was really doing was praying to keep him safe uh, and to keep, um, you know, the hundreds of of older people uh, that were at the late service safe. Um, And I didn't know really what to do with that other than to pray in Jesus' name and to try to bless him and to keep him safe and comfortable and and to bless him. found out later um, that he had gone off his medication, but that this had started when he was a little boy, um, when his dad had come home a little too early to find his mom with someone else. And his dad put a hole through his mom. About like that with a shotgun. And his personality couldn't handle that trauma. And so he developed multiple ones to help share that burden. And he lived that with the rest of his life. So don't mishear me. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I don't believe. I believe. I've seen it. I know it. But what I am saying is that these things come with real life trauma, that Jesus is here to heal. And so wherever you are, whatever's going on with you, there's nothing that Jesus can't do. And I was really pleased um, months later after a lot of work and a lot of therapy and, and the right medication that this young man was doing much better, doing much better, back in class and um, doing very well. But we don't have to know all the details to know that Jesus is Lord of all. So the scripture says that the swineherds ran off and told it in the city and in the country and the people came to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and they saw this demoniac sitting there clothed, which is your first reference to mean that he had not previously been clothed, and in his right mind. Evidence of the healing. Evidence that he was one way before and he is another way now. He was clothed and in his right mind. Evidence of the healing. And the people of the area did not receive the matter with joy. No, they were afraid. They were afraid, friends. And isn't that the way it is so often with Jesus? We like, we know you're good. We sing that you're good. We claim that you're good, but man, we are afraid. What? You can do anything, Jesus. What might you have to do with me, son of the most high God? And so the people came to see what happened, and they they see him sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac had and to the swine, they reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to say it with me. Leave. And isn't that so often the way it is? When we get closer and closer to our healing, closer and closer to that moment of change, we're like, get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. Back up, Jesus. I don't know what to do with you. You're beyond. I can't control you, and I don't know what you're going to do next, so just leave. And as Jesus was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons came to him and begged him that he might be with him. You imagine, this guy is in the tombs, he has no um, contact with people, no one understands him, he's been shunned, he's had major trauma, he's completely overrun by these different demons that are within him, and all he wants is to be with the one man who understands him, who gets him, who loves him, and has healed him and cured him. And Jesus says, no. He says, no. Now, that's unexpected. He says, go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy has shown you. This could not be what that young man wanted to hear. It's heartbreaking when you think about it. But yet, if you're my age or older, you know that you come to these moments where that's exactly the best thing to do. It's what you have to do because it's what's best for him. And he goes away. And he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, those ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Because they knew of him, and then they saw him, and they heard a story. You see, they begged Jesus to leave, and he begged Jesus to take him, and Jesus refused. What a, how are we supposed to make sense of that? Now, this will blow your mind. You know what Jesus was doing? He was choosing this man as his first missionary to the non-Jewish world. This is the first witness of who Jesus is on the other side of the Galilee. Jesus empowers this man who had previously been out of his mind to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And he sends the man home to tell all of his friends. And he's depending on him to do that job while he returns back to the other side of the sea. His healing had been given to him with a new mission, not just to go back the way he was, but to something new. See, just because Jesus says no to your request doesn't mean he's not doing what's best for you and best for the world. And again, um, if you're past about 16, you know that some of the things you're most thankful for is that Jesus did not answer your prayers. Right? Now, this is where it gets interesting to me, as if it hasn't been interesting already. Months or years later, we don't really know. But if you go all the way to Mark 7, Jesus returns to this area. Let's see what happens. It says then he, meaning Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre, on the west side, in the region of the Decapolis. He comes back over. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and immediately his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Wait a minute! Aren't these the same people that previously had said, "Get away from us! Leave! We don't want anything to do with you"? Jesus steps foot on that side, and people are bringing to him. Those who are in need of healing. Now, why the difference? You see, they were astounded beyond measure saying, he has done everything well. They're speaking of Jesus. Jesus has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Why the difference? Why the difference? There's only one man left on that side of the sea to make that difference. It's the one he had healed and left behind. You see, healing has a mission beyond restoration of the status quo. But isn't that so often what we pray for? When I'm with people, we've had a lot of hips and knees and ankles surgeries this last you know, run of the last six, eight months. And so often, what I'll hear people say is, you know, Pastor Mark, I just want to get back to the way I used to be. I just, I just want to go back to where I was two years ago. I just want to go back to the way I was five years ago. Well, here's a spoiler alert. That's no prayer at all when it comes to Jesus. He can do so much more than that. I mean, and I get it. My knee hurts all the time. But here's the thing. Our prayers, Jesus invites us, not just to go back to the way we used to be, but to receive a whole new mission by his healing touch in life. And notice that Jesus' healing breaks down traditional barriers and stigmas of mental illness, of other, of unclean, these people who have been formally excluded from the community are now included in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen? So here's our action step. And this is tougher than it seems. To worship Jesus, um, in, in the original language, is to lay down before him. Put your hands on his feet, face down, to prostrate yourself before Jesus. And, then, and, and so the, this naked wandering tomb dude did it perfectly. The moment he sees Jesus, he lays down before him, and he trusts him with whatever comes next. And it changes the world. That changes the world. I invite you into that wonderful, unexpected life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that there is nothing in this world that can separate us from your love. We thank you for your assurance in Romans 8 that reminds us of this. And we pray, Lord, that when other people say that we're unclean, when other people say we can't be helped, when other people say that our, all hope is lost, when other people say no, 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 that you are a God of healing just the same. And that in your yes and in your no, both of those are good for us. Help us to trust you with our life, to trust you both with your yes and with your no because we know that only you are good, fully and holy, and right, because you're God. And we thank you for it, that you are perfect light and perfect love. And we thank you that you've taught us even how to pray by saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.